We are into the next part of our series. We're only a couple of weeks away from finishing uh, this series that we've been working through the book of 1 Peter. And we're into chapter 4 today. Uh, And I've been loving this series. I I know I probably say that about every series and that's probably good because if I wasn't loving them, there's probably an issue. But I love the fact that that, uh, 1 Peter is such a practical call to faith. Peter is such a practical kind of in amongst it. He's in the rough um, of life and and he's such a a down-to-earth relatable figure. I know I find him relatable. Um, And I think the great thing about us having spent this time in in this book is I think sometimes 1 and 2 Peter, they're fairly short, they're tucked away in the New Testament. Uh, They can be a little bit underutilised. We spend a lot of time often talking about Paul's letters and we spend lots of time in Romans, Galatians and um, lots of the other kind of New Testament letters. But the book of of 1 Peter and and obviously of 2 Peter as well are just so practical. I want us to spend a moment um, before we get into chapter 4 today. I just want to have a look back at, at this kind of opening premise that we saw all of those weeks ago. I think it was probably... Uh, what, seven or eight weeks ago, over in chapter one uh, and in verse six, Peter writes this, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold, So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honour on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Really, that is one of the core themes, core ideas of what Peter then tries to relay to us and recount to us and, and encourage us in. He says that, take courage, be faithful in the midst of trials and troubles because they are only here for a moment. And I think it's very easy for us sometimes to think, well, that's a nice idea. Those are nice words on the page of Scripture. But, but Peter doesn't know my story. Peter doesn't know what I'm going through. Peter doesn't know the situations that I've faced or I am facing. Peter doesn't know those things. But I think it's important for us just to remind ourselves again and again the context that Peter is writing into. You see, he's writing to these people who are under persecution from this brutal, barbaric Emperor Nero. He's writing to people who have had to flee and scatter away from their homes. He's writing to people who have lost their jobs, who have been kicked out of their homes, who have been kicked out of their towns, who are under constant threat. He's writing to these people who have given up everything, probably, for the sake of the gospel. And while that, I'm not saying that to say to you this morning, just suck it up and your, your situation is, is nothing like that. Because I know many of us in different ways have, have sacrificed um, for the sake of the gospel, for our relationship with Christ. We've prioritised that over other things. But what I want to say to you this morning is that God knows your story. These words on these pages of scripture, this God-inspired writing through the power of the Holy Spirit is real in your life. It speaks to your context. It speaks to the situations that you are facing. And so I want you to kind of just have that in mind as we work our way through. We're only going to spend a little bit of time in chapter 4 today in the first six verses. Uh, And we're going to spend some time there. But as we open God's Word, I'd encourage you to turn there. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us today. God, that as we open your word, as we, as we look at uh, the, these writings of Peter, as he, as he implores and charges uh, f- followers of you to be faithful, Lord God, that you would speak into our own circumstances. Holy Spirit, that through your, your presence and your power, that you would reveal the truth of God's word to us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you've ever been overseas before, which I'm sure many of you probably have, I, I, I remember the first time, and you probably do too, the first time you set foot in a different country. Uh, Cindy and I, uh, many years ago, when we first got married, we travelled overseas, and, and I'd never been overseas before, and so we jumped on a plane uh, and we landed in Tokyo. And I remember us kind of navigating the airport, getting on a bus, getting to the hotel, and it was kind of mid-morning, and we thought, you know what, we'll go and get some lunch. Now, before we got there, I had had all these visions of finding these cool little Japanese cafes and restaurants and, and you know, having all of this local cuisine. Anyway, we, we headed out into the city, and it was so overwhelming. We started walking. We had no idea where we were. We didn't know where we were going. Um, and so we ended up having McDonald's for lunch. <laughs> now, I know you've all been there, so you're laughing with me, not at me. It's okay. But I just, I just remember seeing that McDonald's, something that was familiar, knowing that we could point at something that looked like something we knew and, and we would get to eat. But even then, we walked into this McDonald's and it was very crowded and we ordered and Cindy said, where are we going to eat? And I said, we'll eat inside. We, I don't want to go outside again until we know where we're going. Uh, and so I said, there's a seat there and we went and sat down. And as we sat down, we realised that we were just completely uh, covered in this cloud of cigarette smoke because obviously over there, they smoke inside and we'd sat in the smoker's booth, effectively. So it was like a smoked kind of um, Big Mac that I was eating. Um, anyway, we got up, we headed out, and, and we, when we found a nice little park just around the corner. But, but I still remember the experience of setting foot on foreign soil for the first time because it was really a, an experience where for the first time in my life, I was not the local. For the first time in my life, I was a place where I didn't speak the language, where I didn't understand the customs, where I couldn't work out how to get around, where um, I didn't even look like the people. It was the first time I'd ever experienced that and I remember how unsettling that felt. Over time I adjusted to it and I loved it and we had a great trip and we've actually been back to Japan and found local cuisine. Um, so we've, done, we've ticked all those boxes but, but I just remember still the, how unsettling it was to be a foreigner. And this is the message that Peter's driving home to us. You see, he is saying, he's writing this letter to foreigners, to aliens. This is how he describes these people who have scattered. And the reason he is calling them that is not because they've left their town and they've, they've gone to another town and they're literally a, a foreigner to that area. He is saying it because as they have come to Christ, they have become a foreigner to the customs of this world. That as they have come to Christ, their attitudes, their thoughts, their patterns, their, their language, everything about them has made them a foreigner in this culture. I think sometimes we forget that. 
we forget the, how unsettling even that can be for new Christians as they come to Christ and it provokes and sparks such a change in their life that, that it is hard for them to understand now how they feel compared to how they used to, how they relate with people like they used to. And this is what, as we start this chapter 4, Peter is saying to us. And he says this in, in chapter 4, verse 1. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you, suffered physically for, if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. As we've seen throughout the letter, Peter often uses these little words at the start of a, of a new section, of a new sentence, and he uses them here. He says, so then, so then. And when he says, so then, it, it tells us, he's talking about, consider what I've just said to you, so then this. And it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at what the so then was. And so just to remind you, just before in 1 Peter 3.18, Peter said this, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. And then in verse 22 of chapter 3, Now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honour next to God and all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. You see, in these two verses, Peter's given us a succinct summary of the reality of Christ's death. He's spoken to us about his sacrifice as the righteous for the unrighteous, of the suffering and the pain of his death, of his resurrection and his victory over death. He's, he's spoken of his restoration to his rightful place, where he's now seated at God's right hand and has authority over all things. And he says, now then, so then, because I have said that, so then, in light of those things and because of his sacrifice, his suffering of physical pain, so then you and me are to arm ourselves with the same attitude he had. Because Christ first suffered, he died, he rose again and now has authority over all things. So then, you and I are to arm ourselves with the same attitude he had. He says here, he says here, this Greek word, hoplizo. This Greek word, hoplizo, is this word for arming yourselves, arming yourselves. And what that actually is, is a soldier taking up weapons in readiness for battle. The, the noun root of that word was actually the same word that was used to describe heavily armoured foot soldiers. So Peter's point here is clear. He's saying, so then, arm yourselves, get yourselves ready Ready for what? Not, he doesn't say ready for a victory here or ready to battle and to defeat. He says, get yourselves ready to suffer. It's a little bit disheartening, isn't it? Get yourselves ready to suffer. I don't think many of us, when we think about the Christian life, like the idea that the Christian life might include some suffering. But remember what Peter's writing into. He's writing to a people who are suffering under persecution and under injustice. He's saying to them, get yourselves ready. Be well armed so that the suffering doesn't overcome you, but so that you can, you can fight well, you can be strong in the face of suffering, that you can suffer for the sake of righteousness too. And he says, our willingness to suffer here is a short sign of a transformed life. 
There's a phrase here that he uses that I think can sometimes confuse us because Peter says in verse 1 that those of us who have suffered with Christ are what? Are finished with sin. Now, when we look at Peter's life, he, he came to know the reality of Christ. Remember, he is, he's the first disciple that declares that Christ is the Messiah. So he, he came to know who Christ was and he was a faithful follower of Christ and yet he stuffed up. He would repeatedly stuff up. His, his attitude, his human self, his, his rush to action regularly made him make mistakes. And so how can this be? Peter's saying that, that when we come to Christ that we are finished with sin and yet he is a deeply flawed follower. Paul says the same thing, doesn't he? We know that Paul struggles. Paul really finds it, it hard to do the things that he wants to do. And yet we see in verse 2 what this actually means. Peter says, in verse 2, you won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You've had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. I want you to see the contrast here. Peter is not saying that you won't sin anymore. That the reality is that we know that while we are on this earth, as much as we might continue as seeking the things of God, we might be pursuing righteousness with every part of our being, that there will be times when our sinful nature rises up. And so Peter's not saying you're finished with sin that you won't sin anymore. He's saying that sin's power in your life is finished. So once where before you knew Christ, sin overtook and overcame and you had no ability to, to battle, to be on top of that, to, to pursue righteousness, to make those choices. He is saying where once you didn't have that power, now that you know Christ, the power of sin in your life is finished. It is not the most powerful thing in your life anymore. He says that where you once chased your own desires, and he lists some of them here, it's not a comprehensive list, but he's saying immorality, lust, which is the pursuit of, of, and desire for things that are not of God, wild partying, the worship of idols, placing all of those um, other things in our life in the place that God should take. Peter says these things no longer control you, but Christ and his resurrection it may mean that you aren't bound by these things. You have the power through the, the, the power of the Spirit to take control of your life. That's his charge to us. And so in these opening verses, if you are taking any notes, in the opening verses, Peter covers the reality. I've got four R words for you this morning. The reality that, that Christ's death and resurrection is the reality of what we are looking at. He, he then say, he tells us the result, which is the, the work of Christ in our life. The reality of Christ's death, resurrection, his suffering means that we too can arm ourselves and suffer and not be overcome by sin. And now he covers in verses four to six, the reaction and the reward. And he says this in verse four, of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. I wonder if you've used that to describe your friends' uh, <laughs> living. Um, so they slander you, but remember that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. 
That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead, so that so although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the Spirit. I love the fact that, that Peter um, tells us the reality. The reality of it is this reaction that we have to face is that people will see your transformed life and they will slander you because of it. People will see that, that your life has changed, your actions have changed, your attitudes have changed, and they will slander you because of it. They will find that difficult. Your friends will question and challenge. They will feel like you're judging them even when you're not. They will feel like there is, is something you think you're better than them. They will slander you. And I'd say this morning, there's actually something really sobering for us here because if you've come to Christ, but nothing about your behaviour has changed, then I think you need to have a really hard look at your life. You need to have a really good look at the actions and the decisions and, and the, uh, the choices you're making and the, the practices you're participating in because when we come to Christ, people should notice that difference. People should see in our life, in our attitudes, in the way that we interact with people, that there is something different about us. And Peter says that we have to face this. I remember when um, Cindy and I had kids, when we first had Grace, we kind of just lugged her around everywhere with us. So she used to go to bed. Her bedtime was 9.30 at night because she loved to sleep in right from when she was a little baby. So she would sleep in until like nine o'clock in the morning, which was great. Um, but I remember it was really when Judah came along that we uh, suddenly Cindy and I were, were not outnumbering the children. We were evenly matched. And that really made a big, a big difference for us. Uh, and I remember it did change our life. The things that had been easy that we used to do, for example, we used to go and take Grace out in the middle of winter to watch us play touch football late at night. Uh, these things were not so easy. Just randomly going out to restaurants, randomly going to the movies, going and staying out really late at, at friends' houses. These things were not as easy. And we had to establish some new routines, some new patterns, some, some different ways of living. And I tell you what, people do notice that. Those of you who have got small children may have had friends who say, oh, you know, you're not so fun anymore, or you used to stay really late and now you have to go home early, or, or maybe you've even noticed that you don't get invited to all the same things. You see Instagram posts where people are out having a great time at night and you're at home, you know, with a screaming child thinking, oh, life has changed. And this is what Peter is saying about us when we come to faith, that, that it should be noticeable that there should be a change in patterns, that the transformed life is a visible one. And we need to be ready that some people will respond badly to this. I, I've, I've known people who have, um, I remember years ago we had, um, at our previous church, we had a, a couple turn up and they turned up at a New Year's Eve service and they walked up the stairs and, and um uh, it was a man and woman, and the woman um, radically saved, came to know Christ. And, and her partner didn't have that, that same life-changing, transforming experience. And it created all kinds of problems for them because she decided that she wanted to make some different choices. That her faith, her, the reality of Christ and his death and resurrection and her choice to follow him should be re, a reality in her life. And it actually led to, to that relationship not, not being able to continue anymore. 
What an incredible sacrifice that is and, and how hard and, and difficult those things are. But this is what Peter is saying, is that the transformed life, that choice to follow Christ will actually mean that your life will change. And while some people will see that and will be encouraged by it and will say to you, tell me, I want to know, I want to know what you've got. Other people will not respond like that. And, and one theologian put it that Peter's call to us is to develop a thick skin but a soft heart. To develop a thick skin but a soft heart. He's saying hold the course. Hold the course. Don't allow yourselves to be worn down by slander. Don't get sucked into these old patterns of living because each one of us, and this is where he goes to in, in verse 5 and 6, each one of us will stand before God. And he says to them, look to those who have gone before. And most scholars believe that what he's talking about is he's talking about those who have been martyred for Christ. You see, these, these um, early church Christians, they would have known of people. They might have had family or friends themselves who had been martyred for Christ. He's saying, bring these people to mind. Consider their life. Consider their faithfulness. And now see this, consider their reward. Consider their reward. They have counted the cost. They have held the course. And now they're in the presence of God. He's saying, consider the reward. I remember the story um, I read of, of a missionary couple many, many decades ago, back when people travelled by boat. And they'd spent decades in Africa. And they were on their way returning after, after a life spent in mission, They'd been over there serving the people. And as they journeyed home, on their, on their boat was a well-known politician. And they watched on as this politician received this VIP treatment, as people kind of fawned over this politician. And as they arrive into the port, as, as they arrive home, uh, they're looking over the edge of the boat and a band starts to play. And, and there's a crowd there gathered and a band playing as the politician walks down onto the dock and people are cheering and celebrating. And, and as the commotion dies down and, and everyone leaves, the missionary couple walks down this plank themselves onto the dock. And the husband, he turns to his wife and he says, it doesn't seem right that after all of these years of us, these decades of us serving, of us giving, of us being over there in service, not earning money, not earning recognition, it doesn't seem right that no one is here to greet us like that man, that he, he had a band, he had crowds and we have nothing. And the wife, the story goes, the wife put her arms around her husband and she said, but honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. And this is what Peter is saying this is what he's saying. He's saying, take courage in the face of suffering because you know the reality of Christ's death and his resurrection. Take courage. Arm yourselves well to, to, to in the face of suffering, to hold on to righteousness, to hold the course because you're a foreigner here. This is not your home. It is only but, as he said at the start of the book, but for a moment, because there is a promise awaiting you. Your home is awaiting you. Look at what you face in the light of eternity. In the light of eternity. And what an incredible challenge that is for us. What an incredible challenge it is because I actually think it's, it's something that is really difficult. 
one of the main threads of this book. And actually, if you pull out the Greek, in these six verses, Peter speaks of the idea of time. He speaks of the idea of time twice in these six verses. And I wonder if you picked up on that kind of theme of the book as he, as he deals with, with this idea of the time that we have. And that's his call, isn't it? It's, it's a call to be intentional about the time that we have. So this is but a moment and we are to be intentional about it. It was actually while I was writing this sermon, um, I walked into the lounge room and it was kind of, it was this daylight savings thing is just ruined. Like, I love it. Don't get me wrong. But it has just thrown me. Um, I can't, I can't work out what time of day it is. But um, I walked into the lounge room and I said to Cindy, where's the time gone? Where is the day gone? And I wonder if, if you say that uh, as well. And, and I looked up some statistics and in the average lifetime, Get this, we spend 13 years and two months at work. So when they add all the minutes together, it's 13 years of, of, uh, that's 4,821 days. Don't check my maths, please. (laughs) We spend 4,127 days looking at screens. So when you add all the minutes up, 24 hours a day, 4,127. I actually think my kids have knocked that over this year. Like I, do, I think if you've got three screens going at once, it should like count as three days. We spend 1,583 days eating. We spend one, oh, sorry, 12,045 days in bed. I don't mind those two. I'm, I'm okay. Like I'm, I'm aiming for them. They're, they're targets. We spend 1,583 days exercising. I'm giving some of you some of my days, all right? So 1,583 days exercising, 368 days socialising, and get this one, 235 days in queues lining up. Now, if you go to a theme park, like that, that's knocked over half of that. 235 days in queues. But it made me think, how intentional are we about our time? How intentional are we about the time that we have? Because this is Peter's call to us. Be intentional about the time you have. Psalm 90, a psalm written by Moses says this. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because what we do when we're intentional about our time is we put our time in perspective, don't we? We see our time for what it is in the light of eternity. And Peter's picking this up. And these verses have said this. They've captured the, the one takeaway from, for you is, is that in whatever time you have, use it to do the will of God. In whatever time you have, use it to do the will of God. Don't get distracted. Don't let it pass you by. Don't let it be ruined by wasting it in the ways that you lived before you knew Christ. But be intentional now about your time. You know him. You know what he calls you to. So so do it. Pursue him and live in the light of eternity. What an incredible challenge that is. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, that you... You do transform our lives. God, we, we thank you that, that Peter, as he writes, really challenges us to be maybe less concerned about uh, transforming um, the outside world and more concerned about the transformation of our hearts. Lord, we thank you that when we come to know you, Christ, that you 
do transform us from the inside, that you do radically change our lives, that in you we find this abiding and enduring hope of eternity. We thank you for the words of Peter as he calls us to look at those who have gone ahead, the faithfulness of those who have served you and know the reward that they now have, which is an eternity spent in your presence. God, we just pray today that you would remind us of that reality, that we would learn to number our days, that we may develop a heart of wisdom. God, that we would be aligned with your will, that we would be spending our moments, our hours, our days pursuing you, living in tune and in touch with your will, that our lives wouldn't be marked by the former things. But now that we know you, that our lives would be marked by a transformed heart, a transformed mind. Lord, and that would be evident in in our families. It would be evident in our workplaces. God, we ask you to, to just reveal yourself more and more to us. Church, this morning, I want to give you an opportunity, just while we continue praying, I want to give you an opportunity that if you haven't ever made that decision to follow Christ, perhaps you've been sitting in those chairs for a while, or perhaps it's something that that kind of, you just kind of feel like by default of turning up that, that it's not something you need to worry about. But this is the challenge to each one of us today. There is a challenge for each one of us today to make that decision You see, Peter says, so then, because we know of Christ's death, his resurrection, and now that he has authority over all things, so then, that should transform our lives. And so I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Just while we have every eye closed, I'm going to say a prayer, and I want you to to say this after me. You can say it out loud, or you can just say it in, in, in in your heart. Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I know that you lived a perfect life. That you died. And that you were resurrected, that you returned to life. To give us victory over sin and death. We thank you that you call us to personal relationship with you. We ask that you would be the Lord of our lives. We thank you for the forgiveness that you offer. And we receive it now. We thank you for the hope of eternity that you promise. And we pray that that looking to that hope would give us courage to live with our eyes fixed on you. In your name, amen.